Welcome to the Women Want Strong Men podcast. I'm your host, Amy Stuttle. I believe it takes a strong man to appreciate a strong woman, and I'm here to bring a unique perspective to empower both sexes. I love talking with health experts, thought leaders, influencers, and people who have insightful information to share with us about our health, our society, and our pursuit for success and prosperity. Hello, and welcome to the show. Thank you for tuning in today. On today's episode, I have Dr. Tara Scott, known as the Hormone Guru on TikTok. Dr. Scott has over 25 years of experience and three board certifications in OBGYN, functional medicine, and integrative medicine. While practicing as an OBGYN, Dr. Scott's empathy for patients experiencing hormone-related issues led her to become trained and certified by the American Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine. Dr. Scott has helped thousands of patients struggling with hormone issues and is passionate about the advances in evidence-based hormone therapy. Dr. Scott has been speaking and educating for over 10 years and has taught doctors her approach in five continents. For her expertise, she has been featured in Women's Health Magazine, TEDx Talks, Shape, The List, Newsweek, and Parents Magazine. Today, we're going to cover topics that will be both educational and beneficial to both men and women. So hello, Dr. Scott, and welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. So let's get started here. And we know how this saying goes, men are from Mars and women are from Venus, right? That's right. <laughs> and I want to break this down on this episode so men and women can get a better understanding for each other. And I want to start with testosterone. So testosterone is not just a male hormone. It's also important for women. What role does testosterone play in women? So everyone always thinks testosterone only has to do with libido and muscle mass, right? Well, it has to do with your brain function. It has to do with a lot of sphincter functions like your intestine. It has to do also with your mood and your memory and your skin and your hair and your nails, of course, as well. So we see testosterone actually drop with chronic stress in in both men and women. So when you prescribe testosterone to your female patients, Are you using a cream, a pellet, an injection? How are you doing that? So for female patients, there was a world consensus in 2019 that was published. And what these traditional experts said is that a postmenopausal woman with low libido is the candidate for testosterone replacement, but there is no FDA approved testosterone for women. We use it off label all the time. But testosterone is really not supposed to be given orally because it doesn't have a good effect on your lipids and your liver. So we prefer to give it either through the skin. I've given it as an injection. I've given it as a sub-Q injection. I've given it as a topical cream. I've even given it as a rapid dissolve tablet, which is supposed to be sublingual. I personally, at this point, don't use pellets, but pellets in for testosterone for women can be a good uh, option as long as you get the dosing right and the monitoring right. So what's your preferred delivery method out of all those that you listed? So testosterone in a woman either can turn into estrogen or dihydrotestosterone. And you don't know necessarily beforehand which it's going to do. I mean, we do have amazing tests like the Dutch test, which gives us the activity of that enzyme, which is 5-alpha reductase, but you don't really know. So I always like 
a method that you can take away or stop if they have side effects. Yes. Using a topical gel, a gel really has it really penetrate the skin and, and get in quicker than a cream and per se. But using a gel allows the woman to titrate, giving herself less or more or not giving it to her every day. Although I do have people who also like the injections as well. So the pharmacokinetics of each type of delivery is going to be different. So it has to fit with the patient's symptoms and lifestyle as well. And for the people listening that are kind of curious about the pellets, what she's saying is once that pellet's in, you're not taking that out. So if it's converting differently than what the doctor expects it to, you kind of got to ride that out until your body fully metabolizes that pellet correct? That's correct. And so what it is, is a super compressed hormone into a little pellet. So it's designed to release testosterone over three to four months. So for a man, there's not much variation in testosterone levels. For women, there is, especially if you're still cycling. So you're going to have to give much, much more so it lasts that long. So it goes up and then it has what we call the decay. And so we know that any hormone, no matter how you give it, is going to go up and have a peak and then it's going to have loss. If it's given orally, only about 10% is absorbed. If it's given, a pellet is essentially like an intramuscular or a sub-Q in its mechanism of action. So you're going to get that peak and then you're going to get that decay. So the peaks are really high in some women, depending on how they're dosed. Again, some people do great on them, but I think there's a little bit of curiosity on how a patient's going to respond at first. So let's talk about the flip side of the coin, estrogen. So this is thought to be mainly a female hormone, but it's also important in men. Let's talk about the role of estrogen in men and women. Let's talk about men first because it's not as involved, yes. right? So if you think <laughs> about men, you know, their testes are what produces the testosterone. In women, testosterone is only a 25% from our ovaries. It's 50% from the adrenal gland and 25% converted in the muscle and fat from adrenal sources. So really very little is actually from the ovary, whereas most of it is from the gonads and the testes in the men. And so men don't really make a lot of estradiol. Estradiol is the type of estrogen that women make when they're ovulating, and that's what the egg makes. Estrone is the type of estrogen that's made in your muscle and fat in both men and women. But estrone is a hormone that stimulates growth of the uterus, the breast, the prostate. For women, estrogen is so much more complicated. First of all, it depends on if you're cycling, if you're not cycling, if you have ovaries, if you don't have ovaries. For someone who's still cycling, estrogen is constantly increasing and decreasing as the egg grows. It's going to go up at ovulation. There's a small decrease, and then it's going to increase again. It's like a two hump thing. When you are menopausal, you are not ovulating anymore. The definition is one year without a period. So your estrogen is coming from estrone and from andestradiol and from DHEA. So think of your estrogen as a woman as your monthly paycheck. And when you retire, you're going to live off of your savings account. And that's your adrenal gland producing DHEA, converting to estrone. Estrone can convert to estradiol. So you still get some and here's the kicker. Some women get a lot more than others. So there are some women after menopause that still produce a lot of estrone and a lot of estradiol because they have a lot of conversion in their muscle and fat. So let's talk about menopause. Hot flashes, brain fog, vaginal dryness, low sex drive. Do women have to experience all these symptoms or can you treat it? 
Well, that's a loaded question. If I first say like, I do have probably the patients that are not taking hormones and not having symptoms are probably not coming in to see me. But when I used to do general GYN and I used to just do PAPs and everything, I would still see women who didn't need hormone therapy. And the key to managing menopause, I guess, without hormones is one, your genetics. It just depends on how your body processes hormones, right? To your environment. You know, there's all those endocrine disruptors with plastics, with pesticides in our food. So it's also what you put in your mouth, what your diet is. Three is your sleep and your stress. And four is your movement. So if those four things are really good in your life, you might be able to navigate hormones shifts within menopause. However, right now what we have is everybody's stressed, right? We have possibly poor eating the standard American diet. We have a lot of toxins in our environment. And then we have the genomics. We have people who don't process their hormones correctly. So think about it this way. If you charge on your credit card and you don't pay it off, you're going to have a balance. Even if you cut up that credit card and never used it, you may still potentially be paying on that balance for years, right? So that's what we see with women who can't get rid of estrogen. They may not need it. So I think hormone therapy really got a bad rap. There was a study that was done 20 years ago on oral synthetic estrogen from horse urine and synthetic progestin. And they wanted to get the FDA approval to give everyone hormone therapy to prevent heart disease. So their aim was good. In this study, the average age was 65. And what they found after five years is that there was an increased risk of breast cancer and blood clots. So everyone panicked. And everyone said, oh my gosh, hormone therapy is bad. And that was 20 years ago. What didn't get the same MIDI attention is the study that was five or six years later that said, would it make a difference on how we give hormone therapy? What if we gave it through the skin as a patch or gel? And there was a meta-analysis that was published in Circulation 2008 that 17 different studies all agreed that oral estrogen increases blood clots, but not transdermal. And the progestin, the synthetic progestin, also increases blood clots, but not micronized progesterone. And then the last question is, does it increase breast cancer risk or not? Is there a problem? Now, certainly the risk of breast cancer at age 50 is lower than at 65 because we know the risk goes up as you age. But there was an observational study called the E3 EPIC estrogen progesterone cohort in cancer in Europe. Now, it was observational in the sense that they didn't make it a randomized placebo-controlled trial, but the women chose whether or not they were going to take hormones. There are four groups. One group took no hormone. One took, most everyone took transdermal estrogen, and so that's bioidentical estrogen. One group took a synthetic progestin. One group took the, the natural progesterone. And there was a group of women who actually only took estrogen because they had a hysterectomy. So what that study showed, there were 80,000 women, and it was lasted eight years, so five times more women than in the WHI that was 20 years ago. So five times more women in a more appropriate age range, 40 to 64. And what they found is the women who took estrogen through the skin and micronized progesterone had no increased risk of breast cancer when they took compared to women who didn't take hormones. Now, the women who took estrogen only actually had an increased risk of breast cancer and the women who took the synthetic progestin also had an increased risk of breast cancer. So it depends on what you take. It's like, you know, if you go out to drink and you have five shots of vodka, five wine coolers, they're not the same. They're both alcohol, right? But you can't say they do the same thing. 
Yeah. And I think that's good information for uh, women to know because there's a lot of misinformation out there. And if they're experiencing some of these symptoms through menopause, they might be quick to think, well, I can't do the hormones because it could cause breast cancer. And they suffer with these symptoms unnecessarily when they could be seeing somebody like you that knows how to properly treat this. Right. And they're even told that by their doctors. I mean, like I said, like TikTok, like you're directly, you know, exposed to all these people asking questions. And there's so many women who are told from their doctors either one, no, you can't take it, or two, I'm not going to give it to you, which is fine if the doctor's not comfortable prescribing it and they don't have any knowledge that you can't make a doctor do that. But why doesn't that patient get an option of maybe a second opinion or maybe going to somebody who does? And so with the information society, the internet and social media, people, more people are finding help, but I'm still shocked at how many people are not getting help. It's kind of scary when you think about it. We deal with that with the testosterone in men with a prostate cancer or cardiovascular disease or these misconceptions that were decades ago that the primary care doctor should be very well informed on, you would think at this point. But let's talk about that because you talk about when you were practicing OBGYN and women were asking you about hormones or asking other providers in your practice about hormones, it was kind of a wake up call for you. Why don't you explain that? Well, being a traditionally trained OBGYN, I can tell you we get zero training on menopause. We get training on hormones as they relate to fertility. We get training in hormones as it relates to dysfunctional uterine bleeding. Should we cut out the uterus or give you birth control pills? That is it. We don't get any therapy. Now, I am a clinical associate professor at the med school near me, and I do teach the residents, but it's only like four lectures a year. So it's not really enough for them to, they, they, they have an exposure to this type of medicine, but they don't have enough to feel solidly about it. And at least they, maybe it ra- raises enough awareness that, hey, there is options. Let's, let me send it yes, to somebody else, right? Exactly. If I don't want to do it. So that's what I'm hoping to do. But you're right. I mean, so I was one of those doctors that told women like, oh, you don't need to take that progesterone, just take the estrogen. You don't have a uterus. And I cringe when I think about like, that's what we're taught. Or I do remember I was always someone who was open and listening to patients and wanting to help. So I do remember people coming in with hot flashes. And I remember just looking in our sample cabinet and being like, okay, try this. Okay. Uh, try this dose. Uh, okay. Try this dose. And it was a little bit of just throwing whatever at the patient, So very little scientific thought about this. Now, I'm like so scientific about how I do things now, not only with checking hormones, but thinking about the physiology and the biochemistry and the evidence, right? So now I feel sorry for anyone I was seeing before that was trying to get answers from me, but at least I was curious and at least I was trying to get patients to feel better. Some of them are downright opposed to hormone therapy. And I don't know why. And I still have patients that I see for their hormones and they, they maybe see another gynecologist who tells them you should be taking that. And I'm guilty of this right after I had my son, I went to my OBGYN. I'm like, I'm just not really feeling right. I would like to get my hormones checked. And you're thinking as a patient that your OBGYN is who you should be asking about this. So if an OBGYN shuts it down, you know, it can rattle you and maybe you don't pursue it anymore. Or the answer is what you just mentioned, like looking through the cabinets at samples, synthetic oral estrogen. And I would like you to elaborate on that because I think there's probably a lot of people listening that are on it or men that are listening that know their wife is on a birth control pill. So explain. 
Well, sure. So what was traditionally given was something called Premarin, which is conjugated equine estrogen. So it was mostly estrone. And as we talked about estrone as a growth hormone, it's more likely to cause breast growth and uterus growth than estradiol. Okay. And so that particular horse estrogen that was studied 20 years ago has an over 24 hour half-life. And so that means on day one, you're taking the pill. On day two, you're taking the pill. You still got half left over. On day three, you've got a fourth, a half, you're taking the pill again. So obviously levels accumulated. And we know about equiline sulfate that it is metabolized into a more harmful metabolite that our bodies can't process. So that's problem number one. So most, some people may be actually taking estradiol, which is bioidentical, but they're taking it orally. And there's a couple reasons why I don't prescribe oral estrogen. One is because anytime you give anything orally, you only absorb 10%. So you get a lot of huge peaks and troughs. So a lot of people get breakthrough hot flashes because they take the pill in the morning. And then in those early morning hours, they're having hot flashes as the pill is running out. Two, it's conjugated to estrone in the gut, which estrone is the more that likes to stimulate the receptors in the breast. Okay, we have data on this that estrone causes growth in the breast more so than estradiol. So it's on a five to one ratio actually at the receptors. So two, it's going to be turned into estrone in the gut. Three, and even more importantly, anytime you take any oral estrogen, it's going to increase something called sex hormone binding globulin. That's a protein that carries estrogen in your body. So when you increase sex hormone binding globulin, it's like I'm taking more of your paycheck and putting it in your 401k. You have it, but you can't use it to pay your bills. So your free testosterone goes down. So there we go about everyone having a problem with libido at menopause. Well, you're going to decrease your free testosterone just by taking oral estrogen. And even worse, free thyroid hormone. So most women at menopause have problems with libido and weight. By taking oral estrogen, you're decreasing that. Furthermore, oral estrogen increases your C-reactive protein, causes inflammatory proteins, and has an unfavorable effect on your lipids. It increases your triglycerides, and it increases your blood clotting factors, which are in your liver. When you take something orally, it's going to go first pass through the liver. When you take it through the skin, it doesn't go to the liver, so it doesn't affect the blood clotting proteins there. So it's going to increase your risk of blood clots, and that's been well documented as well. So you mentioned the decrease in libido. I think every man walking around on the face of the planet wants to know how to increase their wife's libido and how do you treat that in your clinic and how do you increase a woman's sex drive? Well, I have to say first for men, it is a little bit easier. They need two things, right? They need blood <laughs> flow and they need testosterone. They could literally lose their job. Their dog could die. They could get shot in the leg. They get a little swing and they're like ready to go, right? <laughs> Women, it depends like, oh, you know, did I eat too much? How do I feel about myself? What's my estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, DHA, cortisol? How are my levels? All of that. Do I feel intimate? And am I tired? There's a million things that affect libido. And believe me, I would be a very famous and rich person if I could get one thing that would help everyone's libido. Even for female sexual dysfunction, there have been a couple FDA-approved treatments. They're working mostly through your neurotransmitters, through your dopamine, your norepinephrine. So it's not really working through your hormones. 
those have been plus minus. There's just not the same thing. Even Viagra. Viagra is increasing blood flow to the penis, increasing nitric oxide, which is important. It can do that for women too, but that's not the mechanism of libido in women, nitric oxide. You know, it's important. The clitoris is analogous to the penis. So there is blood flow, engorgement, that kind of thing that happens with women, but that's not the only thing that's involved in libido. If you look at the literature, the one thing that has affected libido the most is estradiol. So levels of estrogen when they're low can affect your libido negatively. So giving estrogen can help your libido. Now, I will say I do see that clinically that it does help, but I don't think there's been a ton of studies on testosterone. I think the studies that have been on testosterone, years ago, they tried to market a testosterone patch, which would have been amazing. And it wasn't that it was, it was not that it didn't come, it was not safe. It was that the business in the end, they didn't want to market it. They didn't want to put the money behind it. It wasn't that there was safety concerns. What it did show is show some improvement. And then again, like I said, with so many things with libido, how can you tell if it's like your stre- your cortisol, you're stressed out? I mean, thyroid can affect your libido. DHEA is a precursor to testosterone. It could be low testosterone. But I've also had patients who have normal testosterone have low libido. They could have been abused in the past. They could have a stressful. It's just very difficult. So I do see estradiol helps. I do see some people testosterone helps. We also use things like sensitizers. So those will be compounded things that like our scream cream or dream cream that a compounding pharmacy makes like arginine, menthol, some sildenafil that you put on the clitoris prior to intercourse. So that helps blood flow because women do as they age, they do have less blood flow. So those things could help a little bit. It's just so, 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 so complicated. But I do think having all of your hormones balanced can be helpful. So what about vaginal dryness or women that complain of painful intercourse? And those are probably two different things there in one question. But how are you addressing that? Yeah, so embryologically, the vagina is formed by two different types of tissue. The upper two-thirds are estrogen-dependent tissue, and the lower two-thirds are more of what we call androgen-dependent tissue. So if a woman is having deep pain with intercourse, then we're more likely to offer some type of estrogen or estriol vaginal creams. But if it's on entrance or they're having, you know, or if you're able to do an exam and you see that there's some atrophy or there's less clitoral sensation, they're more likely to respond to DHEA, which actually has just recently been FDA approved and shown to help all four phases of the sexual response cycle, desire, sensation, climax, and painful intercourse. So I prefer to give DHEA vaginally to women unless we say like as you get older, you get wrinkles on your face, but you lose your wrinkles in your vagina, you know, so you want to have that like kind of like what we call rugae. So if I was able to do an exam to see that they needed that, then an estriol or estradiol based component. But, you know, we can also kind of combine whatever we want through compounding as well. Okay, awesome. Are you doing anything like for the men, they have the wave therapy and I see that there's a lot of discussion around that with the women. And then also the Imsala chair, I think it's called. Do you have any experience with either of those? I'm part of a larger practice right now. We have 27 practices across the United States that are functional medicine. And I know some of our other sites are using the Imsala and some of them are using the weight therapy. Also PRP, also known as the O-shot or the P-shot. So PRP, I think for me, because it's autologous, you draw your blood, you spin it down, you get the platelet-rich plasma. So you're really just giving the patient their own body fluids, right? So I feel like, oh, I kind of like that because, you know, you're not 
giving some a foreign something to them, right? So I've seen some of the data on that. I'm really interested in that. I might we might start offering that in our practice. I feel like, and that also has other uses like hair growth and everything as well. So I really like that. I can't speak to the shockwave therapy. And back to your point, how you said men are so easy. They need you know testosterone, a little nitric oxide, and they're ready to go. Yeah. Well, the wave therapy helps get that nitric oxide, you know, the blood flowing yeah. again. So they're they're back and we're treating their testosterone. So they're back in the game pretty quick. Yeah. I think in some ways men are easier to treat than women. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) 1000%. You got the right thing going by focusing on men, I'll tell (laughs) you. I wanted to ask you about the perimenopause when we were talking about menopause, but then we went down the libido rabbit hole. So explain perimenopause to men so they kind of understand the journey uh, their partner could be going through. Yeah. So if I had a platform that I could really educate people on it, really, I have a heart more for perimenopause than menopause. I mean, I do have a heart for menopause, but I feel like the perimenopause is really where people get invalidated and neglected. It's like they're given nothing until they go through menopause. Perimenopausal is a time where all the good eggs are gone. So getting an egg ready requires more stimulation from the brain. When that brain has to be like, hey, come on, ovary, it's time to ovulate. The increase in FSH causes more eggs to respond. So you actually get more estrogen, but only one egg can ovulate. So you get less progesterone. So at the time of what we call estrogen dominance, and here is where disease comes in. Here's where weight comes on. Here's where anxiety, fibroid growth, breast cancer just by this estrogen imbalance that nobody wants to check hormones for because we don't check hormones, air quotes, if you're just listening and not watching. So I think this is where we need to really pivot. I'm so excited that actually next month I am presenting a poster at the North American Menopause Society, which is very traditional about checking hormone levels in breast cancer, preventing breast cancer. Okay, so I might get laughed right out of the showroom, right? But they accepted it. It's going to be there. It's going to be in print. Hey, and I'm going to present the data of why I think we can do a better job preventing breast cancer. So perimenopause, the definition is once your period lengthens or changes by a week. So if you're always 28 days, 28 days, and then you have a 36-day cycle, technically it's perimenopause. And using that definition, which is what the straw classifications by the North American Menopause Society, you could really be in perimenopause for 10 years. I mean, I literally have been for 10 years. I'm still not menopausal based on that definition. So all these times these women are like, oh, here, either take birth control or mm, you can't take hormone therapy until you're menopausal. Well, yes, you can. You can take progesterone only if you have too much estrogen. And progesterone is FDA approved, bioidentical, micronized progesterone comes in generic. That's like what most of our patients will take to try to balance out this craziness. A lot of our patients in the 40 have had their tubes tied, their husband has a vasectomy, they don't need contraception. If you need contraception, you can look to a birth control pill. If that's your choice, that's your choice. But if you don't need contraception, it's not good for hormone replacement therapy. It's giving you more estrogen at that time and suppressing ovulation, which is decreasing your progesterone. So it makes no sense. I mentioned before we got on the podcast that we just went to the World Link conference with Neil Rousier, and they are big proponents of the progesterone in almost every female walking around. I mean, especially in this perimenopause state that you're saying like, they should be on progesterone and it's being missed. So that's interesting that you're kind of falling the same way. Yeah. And like I said, I mean, my traditional counterparts that give me shade on TikTok for doing what I'm doing is like, so what actually am I doing wrong? I'm prescribing an FDA approved hormone 
that comes in generic that is not as a lot of times covered for my patients. So the blood work is covered by their insurance, mostly, not always, but mostly, and the progesterone is covered. So what am I doing wrong? And the patient is having lighter, shorter periods. They're sleeping. They're feeling so much better and I'm helping them. So, okay, we don't check hormones, but I just did. And I helped the patient. Aren't we all here to help patients? <laughs> it's crazy. And so is that probably the top thing that you're doing for the perimenopause is the prescribing of the progesterone? So definitely progesterone, but you know, a lot of women in perimenopause also have gut issues, nutrient deficiencies. I'm seeing a lot of low DHEA. That's just from this chronic stress, especially everybody the last three years has had a lot of stress with this pandemic, whether they've personally been touched by it or a family member or their job has been altered because of it. So I'm seeing a lot of low androgens now because of that. So just as often we're looking at that. In our practice, we see so many people that have gut issues, you know, the gut overgrowth because poor diet or food sensitivity. So we see that as well. Do you think if you start addressing the hormones in perimenopause that it makes the menopause process easier and maybe you don't have as extreme hot flashes or the sleep or the waking in the abdominal region? Do you think that makes it easier? I can definitely speak to my experience personally, and I can speak to my experience with my patients. I mean, some people get frustrated because I cannot control their ovary. They may have a heavy period, then a light, then a skip, and this. I can't make them not ovulate or ovulate. They're going to do whatever they're going to do. But I've been taking my progesterone since my late 30s, and I actually have needed estrogen since my 40s, and I'm 53 and still not menopausal. But I have, I weigh the same amount I did in, actually weigh less than I did in high school. I'm sleeping. I think I'm stronger, you know, I'm still running, you know, a lot. So for my own experience, yes, checking and balancing my hormones has really helped me and in a lot of my patients. You see the women start to carry the weight in the midsection. Like they feel like they, yes. you know, their legs get thin, they lose their muscle mass. It's funny too, because I don't know what the saying is about like how your own friends don't think you know anything, not, not know anything, but like I have friends who I'm like, oh, if only you knew a hormone specialist that could help you. Like they're not, you know. And, You're you like know, looking like, at them, diagnosing yes, them. Yes, <laughs> I know. And it's like, and they literally do not come in, do not believe in what I'm doing. Some even like, oh, look at all your supplements you're taking and you're doing this and that. And I'm like, okay, look at me, how I look. And, yeah, you, you look, know, like, you look I, good. yeah, I look younger than I am <laughs> for the most part. And so I don't know, it just, again, everyone has their own comfort level for what they do. Some people don't believe in prevention. They believe, hey, if it's not broken, I'm not, uh, you know, I'll wait till I get a disease, then I'll do something about it. So I have many family members that are like that. They think, oh, I'm fine. That was one of the things I was curious for the patient or the friend of family say, uh, I, I'm not going to do hormones. I'm going to quote age naturally. What do you say right. to that? Well, you know, you could say, would you get a hip replacement if you needed it? Right. That's artificial. <laughs> right. I do think not everyone should take hormones, right? I think it's not for everybody. And my mother never took them. She had, I think she had a late menopause. And as soon as she stopped, I mean, her, she's the most beautiful skin. And I, she really aged when she didn't take hormones. Sorry, mom, if you're listening, sometimes she <laughs> listens. But I'm telling you, what do we know about hormone therapy now? We know that the North American Menopause Society says that between the ages of 50 and 60, the benefits of taking it outweigh the risks. We also know that there is a 19% reduction in diabetes in women who took hormone therapy, not to mention a benefit for their heart and their bones for the prevention of osteoporosis. But even just recently last summer, there was a study from the Women's Alzheimer's Translational Research Board that over 400,000 women 
were in this observational study, and there was a 58% reduction in Alzheimer's and neurocognitive disorders like Parkinson's in women who took hormone therapy. And the women who took the bioidentical forms had a greater reduction. So we're talking about brain function. There's so much that's involved. And one may argue, well, you go through menopause, that's how God designed your body. You shouldn't have to take anything. Yeah, that's probably true 300 years ago, right? Maybe even 2000 years ago, whatever. But in the industrialized nation where we have environment triggers and we have pesticides, we have endocrine disruptors, we have the genomics, we have the poor diet, I think it's different. So... I want to go back to the gut sensitivity and cognitive health. What food sensitivity tests are you running in your practice? So currently, I like the ALA test because a couple of reasons, because it gives you an actual number instead of a yes, no, positive, negative. So you can see how serious the sensitivity is. And we're looking at IgG, not IgA. I'm looking into a lab called Dunwoody that looks good because it also has complement testing as well in that. So I was going to trial that as well. IgE is the food food allergies that we see immediate sensitivity. So that's usually what is traditionally checked by most allergists. Yeah, we're doing the Cyrix food sensitivities at Victory. Cyrix is great. We just can't get people to that price point, right? Oh, but yeah. Cyrix is, it is a really great lab and a great test. And we do have an account with Cyrix, but it's just... I, I live yeah. in middle Ohio, you know what I mean? So. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It is kind of pricey. Yeah. yeah. And you mentioned diabetes and some weight gain. I want to ask you about semaglutide, Wagovi. I saw on your website that it's something that you're offering your patients now. Have you had good success with the semaglutide for weight loss? Yeah, we are new in this. It's only been since June that we have been doing this, but our patients are losing inches, losing yes. weight. And one of the things I like about it is we work a lot with insulin resistance. So we're seeing a lot of these pre-diabetics. And th remember, this is indicated for diabetic type 2, right? Yeah. And then they indicated it for weight loss. We are using a compounding form with B12s, which really helps counteract that nausea. One of the other pharmacies we considered using actually compounds it with BPC-157, which is a peptide. And I really like that idea as well. But there's That's some what data ours that is compounded with. Okay, so I actually kind of think that might even be better. So what we're using right now is just with B12. But I mean, we are really seeing sugar come down, you know, weight come off. Yeah. Now, we don't haven't been doing this long enough for me to be like a year out and be like, okay, the maintenance is XYZ, people kept the, the weight off. Because remember, in our clinic, we are talking to them about what they eat, we are telling them to go on anti inflammatory diets, we are balancing hormones. So I don't know what the data would show with someone who just still was going to McDonald's, right, and just isn't eating as much. I'm not sure. But in your clinic and my clinic, that is being addressed that wellness type of thing. Yeah, I think I think it's an exciting medication, it's going to be really interesting, especially for for the, the organizations that we're a part of with the A4M, the anti-aging, it's going to be exciting to see where it goes because as we know, insulin resistance is a major problem and a lot of people right. are, are experiencing that. So we're excited about it. We're seeing great results with it. Yeah, so, we are too. But the trisepatide that's now on the market, which has is supposed to have even greater weight loss. So I think it's going to be an interesting to see where it goes. Well, I am glad that there's options. And, you know, I'm all about body positivity and I'm not into fat shaming, but I worry about people's health, their metabolic health. I just worry about that. So, yes. Yeah. No, I mean, it needs to be taken seriously. I agree with you. Not here to body shame, but obesity mm -hmm. is a major problem in our society. And COVID really shined light on that 
with, you know, their increased risk of dying mm. from COVID. So I think it's right. a big deal. You mentioned in one of the podcasts that I listened to that you treated your own endometriosis. How did you do that? I was diagnosed with endometriosis during my infertility by laparoscopy, which is the only way. So I had two surgeries that I had laser ablation of endometriosis. Between the second and the third surgery for endometriosis, I did find functional medicine. I checked my hormones. I found out that I have some genetic alterations that I don't metabolize estrogen correctly. So my estrogen detoxification was flawed. I also found out that I didn't have enough progesterone. I took progesterone. I balanced my hormones. I stopped delivering babies. I modulated my cortisol. And so for me, when I had that third surgery to get my tubes tied and check on my endometriosis, it was, I mean, I have pictures of the first two surgeries and the picture of the last one where there was no endometriosis. So for me, now I'm not saying these results are for everybody. I can just only speak to my pictures. I had crazy, uncomfortable cramps and, you know, I had really bad periods, the heating pads and, you know, I ruined my stomach by taking so much Advil, you know, and and I couldn't get pregnant without drugs. So for me, get taking the progesterone was instrumental. Addressing my estrogen detoxification flaws were also important. Cleaning up my diet. I was eating a very inflammatory diet when I was in med school and had young kids and was running around like crazy. So I think all of those were really important for me. What do you think that is the contributing factor to the increased infertility that we're seeing? it's got to be the stress. It's got to be, I mean, there's a lot of documented that stress affects your infertility. There's been studies that have been done. It's depleting your DHEA. And there's some data that says DHA can help unexplained infertility. It's causing estrogen dominance. And I think, you know, and it could be also that women are waiting longer. It could be potentially to have children and they're older because back when, I mean, I got married at 24, that's kind of young now. So, I mean, we didn't have kids until I was 30, but I think before, like, I don't think people are getting married that young. And so a lot of women are starting to try later in life. That could be part of it. I follow a lot of that Shana Swan's research. I don't know if you've, but she Mm -hmm. contributes also to plastic and BPA. Do you Mm -hmm. feel like Mm -hmm. that? And then also the estrogen exposure that we're getting from our water system not being able to to flush out birth control pills and what we're seeing in plastic. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen that data. It's super scary. Yeah. So one last question that I want to ask you, because I could ask this from a lot of moms. Do you have an opinion one way or the other on what type of birth control a parent should be putting their child on? And what are your thoughts on using a birth control to treat like acne or regulating a cycle? And a younger female. So I believe that birth control pills are good for birth control contraception. That is it. I see a ton of teens with acne in my clinic. I've seen girls that have been to five dermatologists and they haven't been able to get to the bottom of what it is. And it's either a food sensitivity, gut bacteria, or a problem with estrogen dominance. And I've treated a lot of these girls without birth control pills. So I think it's an easy go-to. And the problem is, is that there's some data that when you put teens on birth control pills, there's an increased risk of depression, which is not good because, you know, there's a lot of that increasing now. There's also data that says the longer you're on birth control pills, there's an increased risk of breast and cervical cancer, irrespective of your HPV status. Yes, there is less 
uterine and ovarian cancer, but there's still more cervical and breast cancer. So I'm not a fan of birth control pills for anything other than contraception. I see girls and we balance their hormones. We use micronized progesterone if we have to. If not, we can use some other herbal supplements and we get to the bottom of any issues with acne without birth control pills. Now, if they need, they're having sex and they don't want to get pregnant, that's a different story, right? So for women, birth control pills are reversible quickly. Once they've had children and they are not ready to have permanent contraception, I almost would rather an IUD. Now, there is the hormonal IUDs with progestin, but at least you're not getting the extra estrogen. Now, progesterone isn't great, and we are seeing that even there's some breast changes even from those progestin IUDs. So I did that after I you know, was done having kids, and then I finally got my tubes tied. So I'm a big fan of vasectomy, my favorite form of birth control, you know? <laughs> If you're down with your family, permanent birth control. That's what I think. I mentioned that we were at that WorldLink conference. Dr. Rousier was recommending the Mirena if you have to get on the birth control. I was curious on the increased estrogen. How are you managing that with the acne? How do you treat that? So what I see, you're talking about for teens? Yeah. Generally, what that is, is estrogen detoxification problems. So there's two phases and there's three enzymes in the first phase. There's one enzyme in the second phase. And if we do the Dutch test that looks at estrogen metabolites, we can identify where the slowdown is. And epigenetics lets us give supplements to help that. We also, with the Dutch test, can look at their 5-alpha reductase activity, which is going to see whether or not they're shunting to dihydrotestosterone. I mean, I'm even okay with spironolactone in ac- for acne for patients if, if it is a high testosterone. But a lot of these girls, they don't have high testosterone. So I'm an advocate of finding the cause and treating that. Yeah, I, I was kind of curious that because I know just enough to be dangerous when it comes to the female hormones, but I've I've been kind of reading about PCOS and I'm I'm trying to better understand that. And it seems like it seems very vague to me. I, I don't I can't fully wrap my mind around it. But so I said I, that was my last question, but maybe just answer my PCOS question. Explain what that is and how are you diagnosing that? Are you going just off of symptoms or are you running the are you looking at Dutch tests or running testosterone? What are you doing? PCOS is two things, high androgens, either clinically they have hirsutism or facial hair or hair loss or acne. So they have to have one of those, or they have to have a blood test that has high testosterone and two irregular periods. That is it. That is according to the Rotterdam criteria. Uh, They don't have to have polycystic ovarian uh, appearance on ovaries, just those two things. So I've seen a lot of girls that say, oh, I have PCOS, but they don't have high testosterone. I mean, that is a hallmark of that disorder. They could be anovulatory, but that doesn't mean they have PCOS. Because of PCOS and the high, and the, there's three theories as to where it starts. Does it start with the brain? You have more LH than FSH, so you don't ovulate. Does it start with testosterone because they have high DHEA, which is a different cell line? Or does it start with insulin, that you have too much insulin and it suppresses ovulation? We don't agree. There's been some studies that they tried to look for a genetic SNP, and we haven't found one yet that's associated with PCOS. So it's one of those three theories is how it starts. So because of PCOS, you can get into metabolic syndrome with insulin resistance and all that. So uh, high blood pressure and abnormal lipids. But I think a lot of people come to me saying they have the diagnosis and I'm like, but you don't have high testosterone and you don't have any clinical manifestation. So how do you have PCOS? You just have irregular periods. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. Okay, great. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. I know you're going to catch a flight to New York here. And I hope that we got some questions answered that both men and women are 
curious about. So I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. Yeah. And thanks for all you do. I know it takes a lot of time and work to do this. And you're really, <laughs> you have a heart for educating people. So I really appreciate you taking the time to do this as well. I have a whole new appreciation for people that do podcasts. I can tell you that. I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> the sure. prep time. Like how many books have I read at this point? Because everybody I have on that's written a book, I feel like I have to read all of them. And it's like, it's a lot of time. Well, we appreciate what you do. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. 